following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, it, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I think this is my third time to do this, and it's like becoming an annual pilgrimage to Houston, which is always great. Um, the reference was made to our team doing better than your team, except it's not my team because I root for the team that's down here because I'm a Houstonian in exile. So um, I tell people that Houston sports is a wonderful preparation for being a Christian um, because we understand suffering. And uh, if the paradigm, the biblical paradigm is you suffer and then there's glorification, and if there's a correlation between the depth of the suffering and the extent of the glorification, we are in great shape in the future, all right? So uh, um, so that's one way to think about Houston sports. I always try and look on the positive side of things, and, uh, and so that's my take when it comes to Houston sports. But uh, I'll tell you, I think days are coming at least, um, you know, the Rockets are having a decent season, and the Astros look to be loaded for bear next year, and if we can just get the Texans to modulate um, their offense, we might, you know, we might have a chance, and stay healthy, we might have a chance. So uh, the only Dallas team that I root for is is the hockey team because Houston doesn't have a hockey team, so Dallas gets it by default. So it's always a pleasure to come down here. I grew up uh, not very far from here, actually. I grew up in the Memorial area. So, um, you know, you say you're from Houston, that's a little bit almost like saying you're from Germany. And so uh, it's so vast. And I come back here and think through this part of the city in particular and drive around. I've got relatives who live in Sugarland and beyond now. And, you know, that was nothing when I was growing up. So, so it's a uh, city has really gone through a transformation. I, I drove down last night and took the Hardy Toll Road, which is not the normal way I would have done it, you know, when I was growing up here. And so it's just, it's just, it's amazing to see the growth of the city. And um, and to see uh, First Baptist, I remember when they relocated out here from uh, downtown. And so it's a, it's a fun process to see, and it's great to see a church doing well and a men's group doing well. So what am I going to talk about today? Uh, your theme has been the kingdom, and so I'm going to talk about uh, the culture and kingdom. And I think I've talked about some of these passages before, but I think they're good to revisit in light of what we've been through recently. I have, I have spent this last week in a series of meetings with people, with different uh, Christian groups. Uh, on Saturday, I met with a men's group in South Lake, which is a suburb of Dallas, and the group was over 45s, generally. It's a men's group, much like this one. Uh, they also eat meet early in the morning. They meet at, uh, at 7 o'clock on Saturday mornings, okay, and, and someone needs to send them a memo. I mean, <laughs> I understand it during the week, okay, but, uh, but on a Saturday, come on, that, that's there's the whole thing about mercy and grace that that group needs to, uh, but it was a group that was that that looks around at what's going on and they were pretty elated. 
Christians. The next day, I met with a group of about 10 millennial women from uh, the Dallas area mostly, but some of the women drove up from Austin. There was a group that's a very, they're a very connected ministry called Polished, and they are ministering to millennial women around the country, and uh, particularly uh, very active here in Texas. And this was their leadership. And uh, that meeting of that group was a, was a room full of people who weren't so elated about what had gone on because of the way women uh, were dealt with in the election. Uh, in fact, I, as you all know, I lead a podcast for the seminary. And when I asked them, um, what podcast topics would you like me to cover that would be particularly appropriate for women they, as a group, said, you need to do a podcast aimed at women that is entitled, Why I Should Come to Church. Okay? That's how disaffected they were feeling. And this is, this is a group of women believers, okay? So um, we can talk about that in the discussion time if you want. That was an interesting conversation. The next day, I met with 20 uh, pastoral leaders in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and ask them, how have your congregations negotiated the space of the conversation that we've been through nationally in the last year? And they all reported, um, I think the way to describe it would be um, confusion and, in some cases, um, uh, uh, uncertainty about what was going on, with some people being very happy about what's going on and some people being not so happy about what's going on, to which I said to them, well, I get it because I had this meeting on Saturday morning with this one group and I had this meeting on Sunday with another group, and it kind of leaves you with the impression of what's going on. Yesterday, or Tuesday, I met with 80 more pastoral leaders in the city. We were just talking about conflict in general in the church and how to manage conflict when it comes up in the church. And, of course, this difference of opinion about the way people saw what was going on was a part of what's going on. And then yesterday I did a podcast with African-American evangelical leaders in the country whose reaction to the election cycle was was different than the men I had met with at the start of that sequence and about where it was with the women that I had met with. And every one of these groups is evangelical, okay? So, so we're not talking about a general thing that's going on in the world out there. We're actually talking about what's going on within the church in terms of the reactions of what's been seen. And so it strikes me that the church is in a, in a, in a somewhat peculiar position these days. If you read the statistics on the election, um, 81% of evangelicals uh, voted for Trump, and about 20% either didn't vote for either candidate or voted for uh, Hillary. It was an interesting, it's an interesting division. And there was obviously a lot of discussion among evangelical leaders across the country about the election as well. So the question is, how do we view kind of where we're at and what's going on? And, uh, and so I wanted to take a step back today and take a look at some passages, just kind of reorient us to where the church ought to, ought to be as we not only think about where the country is, but also think about where the church is in relationship to this, because the one part of the picture I haven't painted for you yet 
is the impression people outside the church have about what's gone on with the church in the midst of this, which is a whole other dimension of the question in terms of how we are seen. And the picture on that is not very flattering. Um, I had a discussion with a major pollster. I, we, our professional uh, meetings uh, take place take place in the middle of November. So this year they were the year after the election. And, uh, and so we have the Evangelical Theological Society. That meets first. And then we have what's called the Society of Biblical Literature, which is anyone and everyone who teaches in the area of religion, religions nationally. Well, part of that second event, I went to an event hosted by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a loosely organized group that uh, deals with contemporary issues related to uh, United States and, and foreign affairs. And in that meeting, we had a discussion, of course, of the election, because every, you know, everyone was thinking about the election back then, and a pollster, uh, a national pollster, uh, had a section of the conversation in which he was analyzing this 81% that I just told you about that had voted uh, for Trump. And he was absolutely, he grew up in the South, came out of a Baptist background, and was absolutely convinced that evangelicals were racist on the basis of the data that he was seeing. Um, and so I engaged him for about 10 minutes afterwards and said, um, I don't think you understand what happened even with the Trump vote uh, in terms of the way people made their choices and that kind of thing. And so we were talking about that. But he said to me, in reaction, he says, well, we'll see. We'll see who's right. And, and actually, on that point, I agreed with him, you know, that if we want to see where the church is in relationship to where the country is, in relationship to some of the issues that came up in the election, how the church responds to what's going on in light of the perception of why people are thinking about the church is actually a pretty important question to be considering. And I wrote a piece for First Things that appeared last week in which one of the points was, although there's an opportunity here, I, wouldn't, I don't know if it's a victory yet, depending on what happens. And so that's kind of where I see this. So here's what I want to do. I want to take you through a handful of passages, and then I just want to have some give and take. Some of these passages, as I said, I've discussed with you before, but I just want to put them in this context. So the first passage is Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. I think the first Bible study I did with you guys here um, well, I've done two things. I've, I've talked about this passage, and I talked about the comparison of Romans 1 to Acts 17, making the comparison. Here's what Paul thinks of the culture, Romans 1, pretty grim picture, Acts 17, but he actually talks to the culture. He does so with a measure of dignity and engagement that's actually an invitation, and so uh, an invitation to consider the gospel. So here's the passage in Ephesians 6. And it, of course, it, be, it is the passage on the armor of God. So if we're going to think about being warriors, you know, uh, for Christ, and can, you know, you guys pick great titles for your groups because they have biblical roots. It's a really frightening thought that you do that. And so, um, so if you think about uh, the biblical roots of what's going on, uh, that passage is the armor of God passage. It is, it is the battle passage, if you will, of the Bible. But there's something going on very interestingly in the middle of that passage. Verse 10 says, 
Starts in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his, ba- by his vast strength. Um, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible here because I'm the First Baptist. And put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. And then the verse that I like to quote in thinking about this, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. And the point that I like to make about this is, this is a picture of a wrestling match, literally hand-to-hand combat. And the picture is that people are not the point of the battle. People are not the point of the war. In other words, we're not supposed to think of people who disagree with us as an enemy, okay? The battle that we have is a spiritual battle for hearts. And so rather than thinking about this being kind of a conventional battle or war in which the goal is to defeat the enemy and bring them to submission, don't think about it that way, what we're really more like is a special operations group whose assignment is to rescue people who are in the clutches of someone trying to do them damage, okay? Now, that's a very different picture than the normal way we think about the culture war. And so this picture is the definition of our battles not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, and that's, and, and so you think yourselves in terms of rescuing someone. So your goal isn't to win a debate, Okay, or even to assume a kind of uh, political power, although there might be some political dimensions to the conversations that you have. The goal is to try and persuade people as best as possible, okay, that there's a healthy way for people to live together and to rescue them in the midst of that battle. So that's our first passage. Second passage, I'm just going to summarize. Second passage is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. And if you read through that text, it begins, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's talking about the new birth, okay? Baptists get the new birth because Baptists know you got to be born again, okay? Baptists pronounce that correctly. That's A-G-I-N, okay? And you preach that from the pulpit, okay? All right? So you guys get being born again, okay? And, and so, you know, and in that passage, Paul is talking about being a minister of a ministry of reconciliation. He has one word that he can pick to summarize what he is completely about and summarize what the gospel is completely about. And the project is a reconciliation project. And that reconciliation project isn't merely the idea of reconciling people to God, but it's the idea that if they are reconciled to God, we put them in a position to be reconciled to one another at the same time. It is the mirror of the great commandment, which is the call to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, and that that grows out of the gospel. And so he portrays himself as an ambassador. So I tell people an even better metaphor than the cultural cultural war metaphor, or an even better metaphor than the idea that we're part of special operations trying to rescue people out of the clutches of someone else, else's hand is trying to do them harm, is the picture that we are ambassadors for Christ. And we represent him and his kingdom wherever we are. And the kingdom is a distinct thing from the world and the institutions of the world. 
that actually when you talk about the gospel and you share the gospel and you're trying to draw people into discussion about the gospel, you're asking people to step into a sacred space that is distinct and separate from the world. Now, it's designed to impact the world, but it's distinct and separate from the world. And ambassadors' jobs, generally speaking, aren't to promote war. Okay? An ambassador's job primarily is to promote the development of peace, which is kind of on the reconciliation side of that ledger. Okay, so that's the ambassador picture. Okay, I'm building Portugal. Now, the next passage I want to go to is in 1 Peter chapter 3, and this one I want to look at. This one, I think, the, when last time I talked about it, we kind of ran through it quickly, and I want to slow down and take a good look at this passage. Because I think this passage is where we are. Okay? So if you have your Bibles, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3, and it says, Who will harm you if you're deeply committed to what is good? Okay, I call 1 Peter 3.13, uh, life in the world as it ought to be. Okay? The world as it ought to be is, if you do good, you have nothing to be afraid of. Okay? All right? So, I mean, it's not rocket science, okay? We teach our kids as they're growing up the difference between good and bad, and we basically say, if you do good, you're doing good, okay? And you don't have anything to be afraid of. But verse 14 tells you you're not living in a normal world. You're living in a dysfunctional world. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and the anticipation here is, um, that that might actually happen. If you should suffer for, for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Now, the interesting part of that verse is you may, you, don't, you may not live in a normal world. In fact, the normal world may be that you may um, suffer for doing what's good because the world is that kind of upside down. Uh, you can expect it. In fact, Anyone who reads the second half of Jesus' ministry in any of the Gospels knows that Jesus taught the disciples that if they came to him, they would never have another problem in the world again. No. Okay? Okay? That if they came to him, they would be treated as he had been treated by the world and that they could anticipate um, a pushback from a dysfunctional world, that that was space they needed to be prepared to walk into. Um, the foxes have, hole, ho, uh, have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Okay? So you've got this picture. And the interesting thing is, despite that tension, the last part of the verse says, do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Our reaction to that is not supposed to be fear or frustration or anger or any of those emotions. We're supposed to trust God for where he has us because our identity is connected to him and the fact that we're citizens of a kingdom and our identity and our security is in our relationship with God more than it is the circumstances that surround us. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. So, so then read on. Then the next verse is a very well-known memory verse. Usually if you do a memory program, 1 Peter 3.15 is in there somewhere, and I'll quote this to you, and you'll go, yeah, I've heard that before. It goes, but honor the Messiah or set Christ apart uh, 
as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Okay, I'm an ambassador. I'm a minister of reconciliation. And my message is one of hope. That's what that's telling you. And I'm supposed to be prepared to give a defense for that. As an ambassador, I represent the country to which I belong, the kingdom of which I am a part, and that's a hope message. Now, the interesting thing is, is that because 1 Peter 3.15 is the memory verse, people don't oftentimes read on to verse 16, okay? In this case, it's recommended, okay? Because here's what verse 16 says. It says, however, do this, give this defense, Give this articulation of the hope for which you are an ambassador. Um, engage in the process of persuasion as a special ops troop uh, trooper. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when they, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. And then the example in the next verse is the way Christ went through a world that put him on the cross. And I'm sitting here going, man, is there a lesson in that? Um, Just think through. Do it with gentleness and respect. And sometimes I listen to the way the church interacts with the world about where it is with reference to the gospel And if I were to ask, where is the gentleness and respect in that form of engagement? What'd you say? It ain't there, okay? It ain't there oftentimes. And I'm sitting here going, that's not a biblical response to where we are. That's not how we should be portraying ourselves because our goal is not to crush people. Our goal is actually to extend an invitation to people to come into a place they currently do not occupy. Now, granted, some people are going to be hostile and have a reaction, but other people might be open to the invitation, but how we extend it may have everything to do with whether they think we're approachable or not. So we have to wrestle with that part of the equation. Okay, well, that was fun but I'm not done, okay? Now go to Colossians 4, 5, and 6. I want to show you how consistently this is is said. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Paul has just asked for prayer. He's in prison for his faith, and he's just asked for prayer that he ought to have the boldness to speak in the way that he ought. And then in verse 5, he gives this advice to the Colossians about the situation they find themselves in. Because you've got to remember the first century church didn't have any political power, didn't have a vote, um, were a minority, uh, sociologically had no means of thinking on the normal measurements that they'd ever amount to anything. And yet, out of the first century church emerged a world movement that impacts you. How did they get there? They got there with this strategy that I'm unfolding. Okay, verse 5 says, Act wisely towards outsiders, making the most of your time. Your speech should always, 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 that was emphatic, 
okay? Be gracious. Now, always means, it's a technical term, always. Okay, that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, 365 days out of the year, 366 in a leap year, you don't get a day off. Okay? All right? Always. That's in every time and in every situation, your speech should be gracious. Season with salt so you may know how to answer each person. A verse I don't have on the list that I could add to this is Galatians 6.10, which says, do good to everyone, kind of like, that's kind of like that word always, except now we're dealing with people, not time. Do good to everyone, especially those of the faith. Okay? So it's the same thing. Now, a summary of all that, last passage and then we talk. Last passage is 2 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 22. Now, of all the verses that I've cited, this is probably the least known text. Okay, this is what it says. This is how to live in the world. This is a good summary verse for how to live in the world. It says, flee from youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I like to say that what we're talking about is exercising the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of the world. And then the next observation I like to make is, have you ever thought about the fruit of the Spirit and how relational it is? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Most of those attributes are relational. Okay? So if we're asking, how do I see the fruit of the Spirit? It's not by the ideas that I have in my head. I see the fruit of the Spirit by the kind of relationships that I have with people and the way I'm interacting with them. And this is saying very little different. Flee from youthful passion, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord with pure heart. Reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. The the Lord's slave must not quarrel, but be gentle to, and oh no, there's that word again, everyone. Always, everyone, that's right, yeah. That's uncomfortable, okay? Must be gentle to everyone, able to teach, and patient, instructing his opponents with, and there's our word gentle. Gentle is the same word we had in 1 Peter 3. Okay, instructing opponents with gentle is the same concept we had in Colossians 4. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. The last part of that passage says exactly what Ephesians 6 says. Our battle's a spiritual battle, and the goal is to rescue people. The goal is to issue an invitation. The gospel is supposed to be, now hang in with me here, simultaneously an invitation and an enticement a positive enticement to a different way of life. 
I have a business leader who we work with very closely at the Hendricks Center. He manages uh, 4,000 people for a global corporation. Um, and in the faith and work stuff that we've done out of the center, he says, um, he said, there was a time when I was thinking about leaving my job to go into full-time ministry, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me, God had given me a full-time ministry where he has me working and the people I manage. They are my flock. And he says, I try and represent the gospel in the context of my job and minister to them as a caring pastor would his flock. And in the midst of that, what I'm recognizing is, is that the opportunity for sharing the gospel comes by invitation. And the invitation comes through how I treat the people I work with and how they see my faith and the way I interact with them and the way I do my job. And I'm going, I couldn't have said that better myself. Okay? Okay. He said, he said, the gospel comes by invitation. I see the people that I work with as part of my flock. It's the network that God has given me of relationship. And my job is to minister to them, and the gospel comes by invitation, and that invitation is extended by the way I treat them and the way I interact with them. And hopefully I treat them in such a way with enough communication of respect and dignity that they begin to ask, why are you different than many of the people I work with and work around? That's what he's, that's what he's thinking and saying. And, I, and what I like to say is the gospel is simul, getting to the gospel is simultaneously delivering an invitation but it's an invitation that comes with an enticement. And the enticement is that you treat people with enough dignity and respect that they're curious as to where your attitude of treating them that way comes from. Now, if you're asking me how to engage in the culture war and in the battle that we're talking about with the parameters that the Bible sets, it seems to me that's how you do it. Okay, so I'm done. The floor is open. T time for a little open discussion, and then we'll let you talk at your tables. So comments, observations, questions, lamentations, exhortations, critique, any of the above. Go ahead. Corporate environments. Yep. Nothing changes about the assignment. You're still an ambassador. You're still called to engage in this rescue operation. Uh, if you want to think about, well, how do I do that? Um, Greg Kunkel, who is a national apologist, teaches out at Talbot Biola, California, does a lot of apologetics work. And he, and so if you need it, if you need a picture that kind of has an edge to it, he says, my job when I'm interacting with people in the world is to put a rock in their shoe. Okay. Okay, think about a rock in the shoe. You know what a rock in the shoe? Rock, when you get a rock in the shoe, it, it's it's a little annoying. You know it's there. You do everything you can to get rid of it without taking the shoe off. Eventually, you might eventually have to untie the shoe and get the rock out of the shoe. But his, the way I like to say the same thing is I like to give people pause. I like to engage them in a way that asks a question that says, is this the best way for us to get along? Is this the best way to proceed? Is this the most uh, healthy way to move forward? Those kinds of questions. But to do it 
not in a way that casts the person I'm disagreeing with as an enemy, okay, but to ask, let's put our heads together and ask ourselves, does this work, okay? Like, if you look at the way um, our politics has been going over the last several decades, and granted, there's, there are deep divisions in what's going on the way people think, okay? Uh, but we've gone through two decades of pretty, pretty significant and consistent gridlock. It doesn't matter who's in the presidency, doesn't matter who's in the Congress, okay, we've got this gridlock thing going on. Now, one of the interesting things that's happened now is we're in a situation where there's a potential for less gridlock just because of the way the politics and the way the parties are aligned in the legislature and in the executive branch now. But now the question is, will we parse out that legislation in a way that reflects Christian values when it comes to certain areas? The onus is still there to think about what it means to represent Christ and Christian values, even with an administration that a lot of Christians think is more aligned, if you will, to Christian values than the previous administration. We'll see. The jury's out. That's my point, okay? The jury's even out on whether the Christian community can parse what is going on in those discussions. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, and I think this is a test because there's a dynamic that exists in our country of what I would call tribalism, okay? It's an American tribalism, if I can say it that way, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conversation in which American civil values and in some cases American religious values, with the key thing being American here, um, and gospel values don't entirely align. So the question is, will the church, when, it, when those moments are presented, be able to look back and say, well, my gospel values take me here my national values may take me there. They don't quite align. Now, what do I speak up for? So when you're talking about the way in which certain groups of people are addressed, described, or characterized, it, 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 it runs from immigration to the way the race relations. This is why my, my African-American brothers and sisters are nervous. Okay? This is why... My Hispanic leaders, you know, we interact with everybody at the seminary. We've got Hispanic leaders. They have congregations that are half full. Some of them are half full of undocumented immigrants, for which the stated policy is, we're going to ship you all home. And they're thinking about, how do I minister to that? How do I minister to that fear? How do I minister to the possibility that there are families that would be broken up if that were actually executed? Is that the way Christians think families should be treated, even in the midst of the legal questions that might? Or isn't there some type of isn't there some type of discussion about immigration reform and policy that can be? How can I say this? Um, less um, less radical, okay? Uh, less potentially family hostile. And aren't we clever enough to think through what that might be and to wrestle with that question, those kinds of things? And then where does the church stand in a context in which a lot of the Bible says you should be sensitive to what it is to be a foreigner in a strange land? 
Okay, there are loads of passages like that coming out of the Old Testament. That kind of thing. So, so the, can we parse the distinction? We can. Can we be great? Let's say it positively. Can we be grateful for the opportunity that exists because of what's taken place in some areas, but be sensitive enough to realize that there are other conversations that are going on coming from the same place that might not be as Christian that the church needs to be able to parse and respond to? Yeah, and the, here's here. I don't want to discuss specific policy because I actually because, but but here here's the point. The point is. We're pretty clever people when we want to be. We ought to be able to sit down and think through a policy or a set of policies from top to bottom that deals with where we are and where we've come from in getting to where we are because it's a three-decade-old problem. It goes back to the 1980s. And there were things done in the early part of that sequence that helped to put us where we are that I will express my view here, that I think we as a country have been slow to own our responsibility in, okay? So, I mean, most of us, we live in Texas, most of us know people who are in the circumstances that we're talking about here. And in some cases, we've even encouraged that to do the jobs that other people either weren't interested in doing or whatever. So we've contributed, we've contributed to this problem, okay? So to me, what I mean by parsing out as a Christian, is to look at these issues and think about them that way rather than the kind of binary way that they tend to get discussed in the public square. I'm either for immigration or I'm against it. A vast oversimplification of a very difficult discussion, complex discussion. And to me, a responsibility of the Christian church, because we are fundamentally about how we relate to people, to me, a fundamental Christian value is to think through the human side of all that discussion from all its angles, from the legality side on the one hand, its attention, and from the family side on the other. And certainly, if we had a good discussion, there might be a way to craft a policy that makes more sense than the two alternatives that are primarily put on the table, which is leave our borders completely open and don't worry about it, or on the other end, send all the illegals home, okay, with all the impact that that has. Surely, surely there's enough creativity uh, in if there were a desire there. And to me, a Christian thing would be to insist we need to have that conversation. Let me say it another way. You're dead right. Here's the, pro here's the problem that I see. Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's a good observation. Here's my fear, because I haven't gotten to my fear yet. My fear is, is that our discussions politically and corporately have become so tribal. Okay, I'm not thinking Christian and non-Christian here. I'm thinking ideologically tribal, okay? But the two have become intertwined in some ways. They become so tribal that to be self-critical of where your own family is is to be viewed as defection, okay, rather than moving towards a, middle, a discussion about moving towards the middle. If that dynamic takes place, 
We don't have the conversation that we need. Or another way to say it is this way. I, just, I, did, a book on, I did a book on a biblical view of American politics this last year called How Would Jesus Vote? The book basically broke down. I didn't break it down this way. If I were writing again, I would break it down this way. The book basically broke down into three categories. Issues in which there are biblical principles on both sides of the ideological debate, but each ideology is being selective in how they're handling the biblical passage. They're not looking at the tension of life in a dysfunctional world, and they're not negotiating out how to balance the tension. They're each picking their side of the debate. And the key premise of the book was almost all of our political issues fall in that category. Second category was everybody knows what to do, they just have no idea how to get there, okay? That's racial reconciliation. You walk into most rooms in any part of the country, no matter who you're talking to, and say, should the races be reconciled to one another? Shouldn't we be able to live in peace? The answer you would get is yes, absolutely. How do we get there? Now let's have the conversation. Because people's experiences of what they've experienced have been so vastly different depending on where they are in that spectrum. That's what drives the problem there. The third category are really what I would call genuine worldview clash issues, really core issues. Two issues that belong in that category, the best I can tell, are the sexuality and marriage discussion and the abortion discussion, okay? Now, those two categories drove a lot of the conservative vote in the country because the court was wrapped up in that as well, okay? Those are real worldview clash issues. But the bulk of what we discuss, okay, I heard sermons during the election cycle in which the NRA was put next to the abortion issue. And I'm sitting here going, those are not in the same category for me, okay? Uh, my joke is, when you want to discuss guns in the Bible, find me a passage in the Bible that discusses guns directly. And let's wait to go out to dinner until we find that passage, and I hope you're prepared to fast. Okay? Um, because obviously guns came after the time of, of the Bible. Okay? Now, that doesn't say that there isn't a way Bible doesn't speak to violence and how we treat one another. That's how you walk into that discussion. But it's not the same. It's not the same conversation. It's not in the same category. And yet I saw people putting the sermons, putting those, those discussions as if they were all on the same plane. That's what I mean by not parsing what's going on around us. Okay? Go ahead. Right. I, I call it, there's a... Exactly. Wonderful observation. A wonderful observation. That's a, and that's why, that's why I wanted to start with the recalibration of the culture war. Because, see, what the culture war mentality says is there's a good side and there's a bad side, and I'm on the good side. Okay, that's the danger of the culture war mentality. Particularly if the other side is the enemy that needs to be defeated and conquered and crushed. Okay? But if I recalibrate that, yes, there's a battle going on. There are things to discuss in which there are really substantive disagreements. But I also need to be able to sort out that it's not a binary. It's not a all for or all against. I'm actually dealing with a spectrum, okay? And I'm dealing with layers. And, and there are many elements. When I talk to our, our African-American brothers and sisters about how 
white evangelicals reacted to this election. They say, abortion matters to you, marriage, same-sex marriage matters to you, but you don't care about my communities. That's how, they, that's how they parse that out. Now, you can say that's right or wrong, okay, because the other response that happens in this dynamic, there are two dynamics to keep your eye on. One is what I call tribalism, and the other is yes, but. Okay? The yes, but response says, well, yes, but you don't realize how important abortion and same-sex relationships are, to which the African-American says, I live in the world of these communities. These communities are pretty important in terms of where my world and my life is. Okay? So I don't know how to... What, the wrestling is how do you prioritize this stuff and deal with this stuff at the same time, or at least acknowledge that there's something here that needs to be seriously taken on. Okay? That's what I mean by parsing. Okay? Um, and I, it's a, it is a good analogy, and I think what our history also shows us is when we put our minds to thinking about how you assimilate the amount of people that come from various generations. Because the other thing I tell people about immigration is everyone, I, if, I, if it were in my, my world, I would make everyone go through Ellis Island in New York. That is a marvelous national museum. Uh, it's the place where most people's families, at least on the East Coast, entered into our country. It's a similar place in the West Coast. And the interesting thing is, as you walk through that, you will see the immigration debate that we have today in the political cartoons that were done at the end of the 19th century. The only thing that's different is who's coming into the country, okay? And I, and I say to myself, we put our minds to thinking through how to assimilate the people who are coming from Europe and for Eastern Europe in those, in those times and manage to create a policy that, that got to some degree of organized assimilation. Surely, if we apply ourselves, we can figure out, yeah, maybe we don't handle 20, but we might be able to handle 15. We might be able to handle 10, you know? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, but my, my, my whole point of the call conversation is this. There's a conversation that Christians need to be prepared to engage in that is parsed out in a much more, um, I will say, sensitive way than the way we've tended to conduct ourselves in the culture war where all we're thinking about, am I for this policy or am I against it? And that's my exhortation to you, is that the kingdom representation of the church and the reputation of the church in being sensitive about people with whom we also want to share the gospel and invite into sacred space is impacted not just by what we believe, but how we say it. And that, that tone matters as much as our content, and we've got to pay attention to our tone. We are a chosen generation out Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day. Your hearts and let the healer set you free.